Well, good morning. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, find this passage that Keith just read to us, Mark chapter 6. Over the last three weeks, Keith has begun preaching through the book of Hebrews, and he and Wilson are going to do that throughout the summer. But this morning, we're going to take a break from that, and we're going to focus on this remarkable event where Jesus walks on water. So Mark chapter 6, we'll start in verse 45, but what's going on here is in the context of this miracle that Jesus just performed, where he fed all these, you know, thousands of people with this small amount of bread that he multiplied these loaves and so forth and so on. And when we start reading in verse 45, imagine what's going on. All right, so there are these thousands of people. They are in awe of Jesus. And suddenly, my Bible translation, verse 45, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus does this amazing miracle. There's these enormous crowds. And then he's making the disciples leave and he's making the crowds leave. So imagine this. I mean, use your imagination and, and think about this. Imagine the energy. Um, if you've ever been in a massive crowd that just experienced like something amazing, like a high school basketball team wins the state championship or something, and everybody's just buzzing with all of this energy, here are these thousands of people. They all have just collectively had this you know, mind-boggling experience. And all of the sudden, right in the center of this crowd, Jesus is like shifting things around, telling disciples, hurry, you need to leave, getting the crowds to all leave. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he being so unusually forceful with the disciples? The people in the crowd misunderstood the miracle. They're saying things to each other, and you can feel it. It's racing through the crowd. They're talking about the fact that this thing they've hoped for, for centuries, for millennia, that it's finally coming true, that they finally found their freedom fighter who's going to set them free for the last several centuries from the evil Roman Empire that's conquered Israel, And like Judas Maccabees a couple of hundred years before, oh yeah, this is the guy who's going to like lead us into a revolution and he's going to lead us to throw off the power of Rome. And so while all of that's happening, there's Jesus in verse 45, he's getting the disciples out of there because they're just no help at all in this moment. They're not calming the crowd down. They're not figuring out with Jesus that this is going in a bad direction. In fact, they're buying into the same line of argument. They're thinking about Jesus in the same way that everybody else was thinking. And so Jesus needs to diffuse this situation before a riot starts, before they are like, yeah, let's, let's go fight Rome right now. So he quickly gets the disciples out and he quickly dismisses the crowds and then watch Jesus. Watch what he does in verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, imagine this in your mind. Crowd, huge excitement. Jesus gets everybody. He gets everybody moving in other directions. And then Jesus leaves everybody and goes off all by himself. 
a rather Phil Wickline kind of move. He goes off all by himself, and what is he doing? He's praying. And then, notice what happens next. It gets dark. So this is really evocative storytelling. You need to be imagining this. You need to be seeing this. In verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. So there's Jesus on the mountain by himself praying. And in Mark's gospel, this happens three times. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes off by himself to pray. And every time, it's night. And every time, Jesus is in a lonely place. And he's seeking every time to do something, the same thing, all three times. He's going to the Father in prayer to confirm his understanding of what God's will is for him. And secondly, to confirm his steadfast commitment that he's going to do the will of the Father. And here's the other catch. Every time this happens in Mark's gospel, when Jesus pulls aside to make sure he's got it right, what he's here to do, to make sure he's got the Father's will right and that he's going to fully commit himself to it, every time he does that, the disciples are in a mess. They're confused. They're misunderstanding. They are getting it wrong about what Jesus is all about. And so the key to verse 47 is to see in your imagination these two simple things we've been told. Jesus alone on the mountain, disciples alone by themselves, physically distant from Jesus. And this is playing out in the dark. Jesus is three or four miles away from them. Now, we know this because we know about where this occurred. And literally, my Bible translates it, the boat was out on the sea. The literal translation is, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And we know the distance is about, at that place, about three or four miles. Now, this distance is not just physical. The disciples are not just miles away from Jesus physically. They are miles away from him in relationship. Have you ever had somebody who totally doesn't get you? And who has an agenda for your life that's not right for you? And they think it's good for you? And you're like, I was not made to be a mathematician. Can't you see I got rhythm? Like, I'm a guitar player. The disciples, they're, they're, they're miles away from Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, inevitably, when this plays out, and it plays out three times, the disciples get into a stressful, overwhelming situation. So verse 48, Jesus saw that the disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus, on the mountain, in prayer, turns his attention from the Father and with supernatural vision, right? This is a long way to see. With supernatural vision and with supernatural insight and with supernatural compassion, he looks through the darkness and through the distance and he sees them. 
He sees what they're going through. And what does it say in verse 48? They are making headway painfully. This part of the Bible is originally written in Greek, and the Greek is vivid here. They are being tortured in their rowing. Right? All this wind, all these waves, and they're just going for it, and they're like, you know, and they're doing everything they can. And it's not that they're in danger of drowning. No, they were in that. There's two storms on with the disciples in a boat in Mark's gospel. The other one is in chapter four. And this is when Jesus is sleeping and they're like, waves are coming over and they're all about to drown. And they're like, don't you even care for us? And he yawns and he's like, chill out storm. And it stops, you know, and they're like, oh, who's this guy? This is not that kind of, we're going to die from drowning thing. This is a dang, we're rowing really hard and we're just not getting anywhere. So picture all of this. They're straining against the force of the wind and the waves. They've worked the night through. Mark tells us in the next part of verse 48, it was the fourth watch. That's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they've been rowing for something like 10 hours. A journey that normally, even in, the, in poor conditions, that journey normally took at the most, six to eight hours. And then we get to the end of verse 48. He came to them walking on the sea. Okay, now, it is absolutely essential at this moment in reading Mark's gospel that you know Mark saturates his gospel. You like that double entendre? Water, wave, saturation, Mark saturates his gospel with echoes and allusions and quotes and references to the Old Testament. Mark cannot tell the life of Jesus without referencing in direct and indirect ways this whole rest of the story that precedes Jesus. And when you know that, and when you begin to read Mark's gospel, not the first time or the second or the third or the 50th, but the hundredth time, and you're picking up that he's telling the life of Jesus by, play, by using all of these references, sometimes they're emotional references, sometimes they're quotes, sometimes they're plot similarities. When he's echoing the Old Testament constantly, when you've developed the habit of reading Mark's gospel that way, and so you've begun to read the Old Testament so that you can learn it and you can pick it up yourself, then all of a sudden you realize Jesus walking on water in the Old Testament, only one thing walks on water. And it comes up a lot in the Old Testament. Only God can walk in water. Now, that's not a phrase we have in our culture today. But for a couple of thousand years, the people of God would say things like, only God can walk in water. Now, now there's this, what's going on here? Think about it. This is in the book of Job, for example. Job chapter 38, verse 16. Job's gotten a little too big for his britches. He's been accusing God of stuff he ain't got no business accusing God of. Um, he's totally misunderstood. And God looks at Job, and here's how God rebukes Job. So tell me, Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? That's like a smackdown to Israel. Because only God can walk on water. So God looks at Job and says, tell me, can you walk in water? And it's such a common thought. I mean, the answer is, you ain't God, Job. You can't walk in water. 
See, the Old Testament, it just saturates Mark's gospel. Psalm chapter 77, verse 19, talking about God. Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great water, yet your footprints were unseen. All right. So when Jesus comes walking out to them, this is not some random miracle driven by the pure external factors of the moment. This was Jesus walking where only God walks. This is Jesus' power to tread the waves as a sign that he is God, that he has sovereignty over all of creation. But then, okay, you get that. And then at the end of verse 48, we get this weird little comment. He meant to pass them by. Now, isn't that odd? Like, did he lose track of the, of the route? Was he like, ooh, too close? Like, did he take a left turn at wave 34 instead of a right turn? Why? What is this about? He meant to pass them by. Such a strange detail. And when you're reading the story, it's kind of jarring. It, it feels out of place. It seemed that Jesus, because the story makes you think up to this moment, right? He was coming to them. Why? Because he, he had compassion for them. Remember? He looks through the dark and supernatural vision and supernatural insight and supernatural passion, compassion. They're struggling. And so you just feel like, oh, he's going to them. And then you're told, no, he's going to pass by them. The whole plot of the story feels like Mark either lost control of his storytelling or something else is going on. And again, the key is to pick up the allusion to the Old Testament. To those who've read and reread and reread and reread Mark and the Old Testament, the phrase, he meant to pass them by, is a clear echo of one of the handful of most important moments in all the Bible. When Moses says to God, I want to see you. God meant to pass them by is a reference of our Old Testament reading. Exodus chapter 33. Here in the book of Exodus, God has just rescued Israel from slavery to the most powerful empire in the world. And Israel has just said, whoa, thank you. We, we love you. We will be loyal to you. Earlier in the book, they had said, who are you? What is your name? How do we know you're real? And now they're like, we're all in. You just defeated all the gods. We're on your side. We give you our love. We pledge you our absolute, lifelong, eternal loyalty. And then the next thing they do is they say, wait just a minute. And then they worship this golden calf. And it's the equivalent of an adulterous affair on a wedding night. It's like, dang, you didn't even wait, right? You didn't wait until the shine rubbed up. You just went right to it. And God's response to this ultimate act of betrayal, his response is to be faithful to Israel, even though Israel's unfaithful on their wedding night to him. His response is mercy and forgiveness and grace. And Moses is seeing all of this. And Moses, who earlier in the story is just learning about God and says, what's your name? In this moment, he says, I want to know you. If you're that kind of God, he just felt welling up in him a desire to see his face, to see him 
ripe for who he was. He wants to know him. He says, show me your glory. Show me. I want to know all there is to know about you. And God says, okay. Exodus 33, verse 19, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you'll see my back, but my face you shall not see. Jesus walking on the waves, on the water to his disciples. This is God walking on the water. This is Jesus, Yahweh, the one true God. And so in the context of this big, rich story that the Bible tells. Jesus' desire to pass by his disciples is his compassionate desire for them to see him for who he is in his glory, for them to know him the way Moses knew God. And and look, if, if you think that I'm making a stretch, verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they don't get it. They don't put together all these connections. Instead of seeing the one and only God passing by them, giving them a repeat of the moment that Moses got, instead of that, it says they're filled with terror and incomprehension. So Jesus stops and he turns and he comes to them. And look, if you think I'm making a stretch, here's the deal. In verse 50, Jesus says three things to them. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. In the Bible, that's God talk. That's the kind of thing God says to people. When God reveals himself to people in the Bible and they are overwhelmed and terrified and afraid, he typically responds with encouragement. Don't fear. But it's not just that that's generally God talk. That middle statement of the three, take heart, it is I, do not fear. In the original language in Greek, we're reading a translation in English. It's ego and me. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses said to God, what's your name? God said, my name, I am. This is Jesus taking the name of God, taking the whole book of Exodus, working with it. And Jesus said, take heart. Yahweh, I am, is here. Don't be afraid. So he's not only walking where only God walks. He's not only using language that only God uses. He's taking God's name. And now let's put all of this together. The disciples are alone. They're in the darkness. They are failing. And God himself comes to them. And in the sheer wonder of his presence, he speaks to them. Be brave. I'm here. The God who made everything. Don't be afraid. The one and only true God is here with you. Now, what about your life? 
You see, I think it's often in the storms and the sufferings and the difficult times when we are rowing against the wind and something that should take six or eight hours, we're at hour 10 and we're, not, we're just halfway there. And it is so often in the night, in the dark, in the pain, that Jesus reveals himself to us. So often, the gift of God's presence comes in the wounds. It's in the storms when we see that we don't have what it takes. That at the end of the day, we are insufficient. And when the defenses of human pride are breached, we sometimes get these glimpses that God is with us. Even if at first, his appearance appears troubling and terrifyingly incomprehensible. And in these moments, our fear stands in the way of seeing Jesus for who he really is. But the good news is that Jesus will come to us even when we're failing and misunderstanding and fearing. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Here is the world's rightful king, long exiled, now returning. He's striding the garden. He's putting everything back in order. And his presence is enough alone to make the wind cease. And he is absolutely the master. And confronted with this awesome experience of, 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 of Jesus walking on the water, confronted with the majesty of God and of God's authority and God's power, the disciples are rightfully astounded. Now, it's interesting. The last time the disciples were in a boat in Mark's gospel was chapter 4, and there was that storm that scared them witless, and the storm scared them last time. But this time, it's not a storm that scares them. It's the one who treads the waves. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who causes their alarm. He overcomes the storm. And there's this irony going on in the literary level that the storm is no, the waves are no longer disturbed, but the disciples are now disturbed. Why are they disturbed? Look at the end of verse 51. They were utterly astounded because they did not understand about the loaves. Now, it's again a moment in Mark's gospel where you're reading a story and you're like, wait a minute, wait, I thought we were dealing with the waves and the water. What? And all of a sudden he says the reason they were freaking out right now is because they didn't understand what, what had happened just before all of this with the loaves. And Mark is wanting you to do the same thing, the reader. He's saying, basically, did you know that? Is the reason you're sometimes confused because you don't understand the loaves? They didn't understand what the miracle of the loaves revealed about Jesus. They didn't realize that when Jesus did this miracle with the bread, that this was again, this was God, the one and only God, doing a thing he's done before with his people feeding them when they don't have food. When did that happen? In the book of Exodus. When the people of Israel are out in the wilderness and they don't have anything to eat and God miraculously provides this bread. In fact, when you think about it, a miracle of bread and a miracle with water, 
Didn't that happen in Exodus? Wasn't there in Exodus this miracle with water, parting of the Red Sea, followed up by a miracle with bread? And Jesus is doing all this stuff by saying, this is me. This is who I am. I am this God. Clearly, they had not put all of this together. Think about Psalm 107. He satisfies the thirsty. He fills the hungry with good things. He spoke and rouses a storm wind. It tossed the waves on high. He hushed the storm to murmur the waves of the sea. When Psalm 107 reflected on the book of Exodus, it put the two together. He fills the hungry. He calms the storm. And that's exactly what God is doing again in the book of Mark. Now, why are they missing it? Are they missing it because like some of us, to be quite honest, I mean, not to mess with you too much because you just don't know the Old Testament well enough. Is that why they're missing it? It's not. They know the Old Testament well enough. The reason they're missing it, look at the last phrase of Mark chapter four, verse 52. Their hearts were hardened. Not they hadn't gone to Sunday school. The last time in Mark's gospel that phrase was used, hard hearts, it was back in chapter 3, verse 5, in the synagogue in Capernaum when Jesus heals this man with a deformed hand. And then it says that the Pharisees who were resisting God's work, their hearts were hardened. And now Jesus, Mark is telling us the same thing is going on with the disciples. This is remarkably strong language for what appears to be such an easy mistake to make. To be quite honest, I bet most of us in this room made the mistake of not putting all this together. But he's saying, no, the reason that they didn't put it together, it's not the natural slowness of ordinary people in the presence of extraordinary things. The reason they missed the point is because their hearts were hard. So we should not miss Mark's point. Faith is not inevitable. Faith in Jesus is not an inevitable result of knowing things about Jesus or even being near Jesus. Faith is not something that happens automatically or evolves inevitably just because you go to church, just because you're raised in a Christian family. Faith is a decision, a personal decision. And in the Gospel of Mark, it is more often than not a decision made in the face of struggle and fear. It's not a feeling that washes over you. It's a choice. And growing as a Christian is more endangered by refusing to choose faith than it is by circumstances. You see, the point here is that for the disciples, their problem, their lack of understanding, it was not a case of ignorance. It was a willful blindness, a reluctance to open their hearts to Jesus. The miracle of the loaves should have caused them to see things in a new light. If they had reflected on the miracle of the loaves and if they had made the choice, they would have realized the water isn't much of a problem either. Now, this, there's a very important detail that I keep skipping over. Several times I've pointed out that the Old Testament saturates Mark's gospel and how crucial it is for us hearing God's address in this. In the Old Testament, there is a strong association between water and death and chaos, and fragmentation, and 
deconstruction. And Mark has that in mind. He's drawing on it. In fact, a few chapters later, when Jesus is walking, is talking about his own impending crucifixion and death, he speaks of it in terms of sinking in water. He calls it his baptism. Look at it this way. Just shift gears for just a minute and put this all together. Imagine Mark writing this gospel. He's in the city of Rome. It's somewhere in the 50s AD. It's 20 to 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. He's with the apostle Peter in Rome, and they are telling this Jesus story to everybody they can because their goal is to convert the epicenter of the world at this moment. And Mark is telling these stories, and he's writing them, and he's telling these things about Jesus that are just breathtaking. And he's saying Jesus walked on water, as a foresh- not as an, a, a reference back only that he's God, but also as a foreshadowing that he's going to walk on death. He's going to trample death. He's going to conquer it. Jesus Christ is the sovereign creator of the entire universe. There is no other God, and he sees you in your distress. And he sees you when you are in darkness and surrounded. And he sees you in bondage to your sin. And he tramples death. That's what Mark wants you to do. He wants you to imagine the times you're in this boat. The times that you're surrounded. The times that you're going down. And he wants you to know Jesus can walk on death. He, he does it. He, he conquers death. And he wants you to respond to that with faith. We must choose faith. In the face of fear, choose faith. Will you be willfully blind? Are you, or are you reluctant to open your heart fully in spite of Jesus' distance from you? In spite of the fact that you don't feel him or see him or understand it all? He sees you in the darkness of your misunderstanding and your pain and your bondage. And he sees you with compassion. And get this, just like in verses 53 to 56, as Jesus is moving about the countryside in the cities and the villages, that same power that he displayed in walking on water, that same, that same storm of divine grace is in our midst. And we're invited, like the frantic crowds, to come and touch him. Now, how can we do that? In the Eucharist. Remember, it's the miracle of the bread that's the key to all this other stuff. Mark doesn't say that the disciples' problem with Jesus walking on water is the fact that they couldn't understand it. He says the problem is that they didn't get the miracle of the bread. This morning, in just a few minutes, just like Jesus did when he fed the 5,000 people, where it says he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. In just a few minutes, we're going to experience that same miracle. You're going to hear those exact same words. He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. And that's the secret. Jesus sees us in our distress, surrounded by our insufficiency, and he crosses the great divide, and he comes to us this morning in the bread and the wine, and he makes himself present to us across the gulf of death. What a savior. Let's pray.